Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, NordVPN, of course. You see, it's Nord, Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's, I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount huge. off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. Hello? Hello? What? Hello? What? Hello? Ian Hunter? No, I was thinking um, public image. And that? Ian Hunter does a fantastic one as well. When, anyway. Well, hang on, at the back, but when? When does Ian Hunter do that? I don't know, it'll come to me at some stage. At the beginning of a song? In the middle of a song, I think. Anyway, I, I'm quite happy to be John Lyon. No, actually, I don't want to be no, John No, no, you don't want to be John Lyon. You're so left-wing. I know. Still, still, still I think, to put that on the poster. Day, the, so left-wing. Mind you, most people are, in comparison with John, John Lydon, about where he is. And the IMF, they're left-wing for certain. Yeah. Have you noticed that? I know. Anyway, it's, it's us just, again. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Halloween live show update before we get lost. Mm -hmm. um, as you'll know by now, we're doing a Halloween spooktacular. Well done. It's at the Indigo at the O2 in London. And it's on actual Halloween which makes it, I think, this year, October the 31st, mm -hmm. as well as uh, tip-top bands and reviews and film slash elite telly slash chat, we're going to be doing the <laughs> World Cup final of horror films. We are. We're doing the exciting draw for that uh, later in the show, which be is bound still to go my beating heart. spectacularly wrong. But before we go any further, uh, Mark, last week the bespoke spooky Halloween jingle was deemed not very scary at all. Yes. So the top production team have had another go. And this time... Is this one going to sound slightly less like somebody opening a creaky drawer, well, which they is say, what the other one sounded like? They say like. it's guaranteed to terrify everybody. Is it Donald Trump? Okay, so here we go. Um, this is what we've got. That's very good. Thing is, it doesn't qualify as a sting because it like goes on. It's, it's like a, a track. It's like a theme tune. <laughs> theme tune that is. That's very good. I mean, it was scary, and I guarantee yeah. that's the voice of Simon Paul. What what word do you say? What's the word? Oh, you do say Donald Trump. Can wow, I had never yeah. heard that before, and I just made the "Is it Donald Trump?" gag. Is that flesh frying or something? Is that what that is? Scary chatter. Scary oh. whispering. Anyway, it's... Um, I've got all their albums. It's on at the Indigo at the O2 in London on Halloween when night When you say itself. at the Indigo 
in the indigo at the O2. So the indigo is in the O2. We're going to have some very special guests. You and don't Mark know will okay. be announcing the least scary horror film of all time. <laughs> so if you have a thought on that one, you can email correspondence at kermitandmayo.com. I will be doing that. For your tickets, you head to kermitandmayo.com. Okay. If you'd like a ticket, where do you go? You go to kermitandmayo.com. Yeah, and if you just want to take part in the general chat, where do you go? Kermodemayo. No, that's no, correspondence at Kermodemayo. Oh, correspondence at Kermodemayo.com. Right. But for very good value tickets, yeah. you head to Kermodemayo.com. Yeah. How many would you like? How many tickets would you like? Well, one for me, obviously. Well, you're on stage, so you don't. Uh, okay. You're not going to be in the audience. Well, in that watching. case, I'll bring all my friends. So I'm good. Oh, do you know what today is, by the way? Go on. 28th of September. Oh, okay. So you were just asking what the date was. Okay, it's the 28th of September. But but it's it's Wednesday. It's a very important date. It's Friday. It's a very important date. Yes. I mean, this is obviously dropping on Friday. Yes. But people can listen to it at any time. Yes. It was on this date in 1745 that God Save the King was sung for the very first time. Do you find that interesting? Drury Lane Theatre in London. And it was Thomas Arne. It was his score, and he was conducting the orchestra. He wrote Rule Britannia. But anyway, today's the first time God Save the King was performed. Thank I, you very much. I had no idea. A totally top fact. That's a totally top fact. Our yeah. house is, as you know, yes. ringing with them. I was at your house last night, Lady in the Van style, and yes. Child 3 was an absolute mine of information. A torrent. Including the fact that in uh, the USSR... At a period in which the Westerns were particularly uh, popular, they had Austens. From the East. East. Yes. I never knew that. This is all genius. This is just the way we rock, basically. Um, I turn up at your house, you make me a cup of tea, and then Child 3 just regales. It it does. It's like it's the full service, isn't it? Uh, So coming up. Later, in take one, what can we expect, Mark? Uh, reviews of Peter Strickland's uh, Flux Gourmet, which is, I mean, it's a Peter Strickland film, say no more. Uh, Viola Davis in uh, the the historical uh, historical fictional epic uh, The Woman King. And uh, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. What happens in that film? Mrs. Harris yes. goes to Paris. And it's based on a novel, which is called... Mrs. Harris. No, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Really? Yeah. That doesn't work. Anyway, I'm going to be interviewing uh, the one and only Christian Bale, who stars, or is about to star, in David O. Russell's period mystery, comedy, crime, drama, caper. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm looking to you. Called Amsterdam, which is out next week. So from Christian Bale on this very podcast. And as if that wasn't enough. On Monday for The Vanguard, we'll be going deeper, deeper, Deep down, 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 deeper, deeper and, and down, down into the world of film and film-adjacent television with another extra take in which you get a bonus review, which this week is... Girls, Girls, Girls. Is that like no, the... Um, not the 1960s Elvis movie. I was thinking of the smash hit for Sailor. Oh, Girls, Girls, Girls. That well, well, it's very outdated. doesn't really it little, Doesn't it? No, no. Oh, really? Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't no, <laughs> no, not really. It goes, shy girls, sexy girls. And then someone goes... <laughs> I remember exactly. that. <laughs> One of the Motley Crue had a song called "Girls, Girls, Girls." Did they? Yeah, it's not that one. Jay Z. There is a, girls, girls. There's girls. a brilliant bit in um, "Legally Blonde," in which she does the the video for her um, audition for Harvard. You know, to put is a personal video thing for Harvard, and she says one of the things that she's one of the things that is that I can use legal language in everyday situations. And she's walking down the road, and someone goes, <laughs> and she goes, "I object." 
Oh, well, that's <laughs> just genius. That film is great. Also, the coasters had a song called Girls, Girls, Girls. But I mean, these are nothing to do with this movie no. that you're going to be talking no. about. No, in fact, it's Finnish, and in the the it's the original title is the word for girls in Finnish three times. And what is that word? I've got it written down on a piece of paper. We'll come to it. Let, let's written. leave people hanging for it's, that. Yeah, it's just something. I'll get to it when we get to it. Um, so uh, we're also going to be expanding your viewing in our feature One Frame Back, inspired by Mrs. Harris. Where Coast. does she go? She goes to Paris. I keep forgetting. Uh, we've been asking you for your Parisian films, yes. so lots to choose from. It's going to be followed by Mrs. Bermany goes to Germany. <laughs> and anyone in Hissingdale is advised to take an umbrella. Very good. Thank you very much. <laughs> We're the two runners. See you next week. And in Take It or Leave It, you decide our word of mouth on a podcast feature. Mark will be talking about something called Breaking Bad, which yes. seems to be an American drama about a chemistry teacher set in New Mexico or something like that. Never heard of it myself. Send your suggestions for elite streaming stuff we may have missed to correspondence at kermanameo.com. And if all that sounds right up your strata, please do sign up for our premium value extra takes through Apple Podcasts. Or if one prefers a different platform, then one should head to extra takes.com and if you're already a vanguardista as always we, we salute, salute you. you um james butler why like that oh as in butler as in blakey dear ss poseidon and boaty mcboatface to put this boat versus ship thread to bed but just very quickly ss poseidon the poseidon adventure based on a novel by paul gallico who wrote Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. There you go. Thank you. Is Kevin Bacon involved at any stage? Almost certainly. To put this boat versus ship thread to bed, or rather on its bike, or more aptly out to sea, probably after taking a long walk off a short pier. <laughs> I walked for many I worked for many years with the Royal Navy and asked this very question of a very salty NCO one evening. And very salty, that's a word that's not used. There enough. is a clear and definitive answer to this question. Okay. Here we go. This sounds like an actual answer. Okay. From a salty... From a salty NCO. Okay. A ship has one continuous deck from bow to stern above the waterline, whereas a boat does not. This is why submarines are known as boats, not ships, and therefore why that film is called Das, das boot, boot and not Das Schiff. Loving the same old show, especially <laughs> the new brevity, tickety-tonk and down periscope. James Butler living the European dream in Lille. So there it is. That's that's what a ship so is. So just read it again. A ship? A ship has one continuous deck from bow to stern above the waterline. I mean, obviously, there's not much point in having one below the waterline. Well, line. but a submarine does have one below the waterline. Well, it clearly doesn't. Uh, hence it being sub. Anyway, uh, thank you, James. Uh, we appreciate that. Dr. Lucy Walker now. Mm -hmm. um, dear Problem and Maria, on the recent sub-sub topic relating to nuns and Nazis, a few more fun facts. Nuns standing up to fascist or violently oppressive regimes of one sort or another, if not specifically Nazis, is definitely a thing. Okay. Good. There's a brilliant British film called A Conspiracy of Hearts, set during World War II, in which nuns from a Catholic convent in Italy rescue Jewish children from internment camps and shelter them in their crypt. The nuns are pitted against the German generals who have taken over the Italian camp, and they are fabulously heroic. In Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, Sister Angela has to confront the Japanese army while stranded on a Pacific island, admittedly with the help of Robert Mitchum. The nun story concludes with Sister Luke leaving holy orders to help the resistance. And the 1960 film, 1960 French film, Dialogue des Carmelites, sees nuns standing against the reign of terror in revolutionary France to continue their religious services. Although ultimately, they get guillotined. The same story has been the subject of a brilliant opera a few years earlier. So there you have it. If you want a gang to stand up to the bad guys, get yourself some nuns. They're the Magnificent Seven in Habits. 
Hail Mary and down with all manner of fascist regimes. Uh, Dr. Lucy Walker. Thank you, Lucy. Very good. Very good. And of course, there is a joke in the Despicable Me franchise about nunchucks, isn't there? Uh, remind me. Well, nunchuck or nunchukar, as they were called at one point, flail sticks, rice flails, um, were, were an out. They were a, they were a martial arts, you know, two two bits of sticks uh-huh. connected together with a chain, which for a while were absolutely banned from being depicted on screen at all by the BBFC under James Furman. Um, which is why one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies was cut when one of the turtles picks up a string of sausages that the BBFC believed resembled a nunchuck, and they cut that. So tell us about something that's out there and interesting. Okay, Flux Gourmet, which is the new film by Peter Strickland, who you and I interviewed for his short film Cold Meridian recently. So he made... Barbarian Sound Studio, starring Toby Jones, uh, Duke of Burgundy in Fabric, which I loved. Um, this stars uh, Fatma Mohammed, who is a regular in Strickland's film, as the front woman of a culinary performance collective. And no, I hadn't heard of it either. <laughs> um, they have a residency at the Sonic Catering Institute, All right. as you were, um, in which, which is a temple of culinary performance, where they're going to workshop their latest project whilst being recorded by a dossierge, a character called Stones. What? A dossierge, somebody who I believe writes... A do- Basically, he's there to just write down what happens. Okay. He's a writer, but that's what he does. Um, who is suffering with intestinal pain and flatulence. Meanwhile, there is a rival culinary performance group, the Mangrove Snacks, who get in the way of after-dinner speeches by, and I'm not making this up, throwing a terrapin through the window. <laughs> really, here's a clip. What happened? The mangrove snacks. Who are the mangrove snacks? They applied for the residency. They didn't get it. And this is how they respond? Happens all the time, this kind of thing. For every culinary collective I offer a residency to, a dozen others give me hell for rejecting them. I have a whole folder filled with poison pen letters. I'm sorry. I'm used to it, sadly. Why did you reject them? I don't like what they do to terrapin. So you only chose me because I'm vegetarian? I'm not going to get drawn on my selection process. Now, look, I know that Peter Strickland's films aren't for everybody. They are definitely for me. He said that he was originally inspired by the tension between art groups who take sponsorship and then don't want any input from the sponsorship, you know. And in this, what happens is that Gwendolyn Christie's uh, character wants to be involved in the creative process. Um, she, She says, you can keep the Epicurean toxicity, but indulge me on the flanger, please, which is one of my favorite lines. Um... And the, f- the film is really strange and engaging and weird and bizarre and surrealist in a kind of you know, fine. But the reason it works is because beneath all that strangeness and ritualized oddness, it is, it's engaging like you kind of believe in the characters. And it's interesting that Strickland, uh, he, he cites his influences as being Bresson, Marcel Marceau for the mime, and the Viennese actionist, no, I had to look him up as well. Viennese actionist. Yes, a short-lived art movement of the 20th century from the 60s and 70s. Thank you alongside this is Spinal Tap because they're all interviewed about the art that they're doing. And here's the key thing with Spinal Tap. Even when it's ridiculous and Nigel Tuffle is talking about this goes up to 11 and complaining about the folding food and then you get, you know, I want small bread or I don't want small bread. You still believe that Spinal Tap are actually a band. And the genius of what Strickland does is in the middle of all this, you do actually oddly believe in the characters, even when the situations are out the window of absurd. A colleague of mine described this as Peter Strickland's funniest film. And yes, there is much in it that is hilarious, but it's also got this kind of underlying sadness and this weird kind of incantatory 
you know, Kenneth Anger, those sort of short films. What does that mean? Kenneth Anger made short films that were like spells. They were like, um, literally watching them was like an incantation. Okay. In the same way that all that weird stuff about washing machines in, in fabric becomes incantatory, it does here as well. So it's engaging, it's odd, it's bizarre and strange and extreme, but it's also oddly moving. And that's the genius with Strickland is somehow he manages to weld those two things together. Don't know how he does it but only he does it. Is this at the cinema? It is in the cinema. Uh, thank you very much. Still to come? Oh, still to come. Uh, reviews of Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, yes. The Woman King, and our interview with... And yes, our interview with Christian Bale coming away in just a few moments. Time for the ads first, unless you're in the vanguard, in which case we'll be back before you can say Fabio Capello. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with Rooftop Experiences located at Bussy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challenges and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Hello, Kermode and Mayo listeners. We want to tell you about another show you're going to love Dinners on Me with Jesse Tyler Ferguson. You may know Jesse as Mitchell on Modern Family or for his Tony Award winning performance in Take Me Out on Broadway. Each week, Jesse takes a different celebrity guest out to eat at a restaurant chosen just for them. No repeats. Past guests include Sophia Vergara, Brian Cranston, Mandy Moore, Chelsea Clinton, and Ed O'Neill. More than 30 episodes are available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. I won't be able to think of it as anything other than we that. Just, while the ads were on, we just had an interesting <laughs> discourse as to why it is that Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, which is, we'll talk about this a bit later, and what tense the uh, the title is. Yes. You think present continuous. Is it? Well, I was thinking I past imperfect. No, but I think you're right. She goes, goes. I mean, it is she is in the process of, of going. going. Is that right? Present continuous means happening now and ongoing. If only so, we had listeners at the Economist who could help us with these things. Correspondents at Kevin. Is that Kaching or is he just doing that? Just no, right, fine. No, it's just turned up. Um, George in Gloucestershire, Mark and Simon. I write to you with regard to your discussion of uh, on why the Financial Times is pink, whilst yes. other newspapers yes. are not, which yes. you which you threw out last week. Yes, as a question. Uh, George says, as a former employee of the FT, oh, yes. don't worry, this is not an exercise in revengeful whistleblowing. <laughs> I believe the reason is that historically many newspapers were originally pink, but dyed white. Due to the cost of this Ooh. process and the paper's reputation for being fiscally responsible, the FT chose not to dye their paper. Ironically, wow. the cost of now dyeing the paper pink is astronomical, but I think most people would agree it's worth it because you know the FT when you see it. When you see it of course, good. a current employee could write in and tell you this is all nonsense, and it's because it's based on a fancy banknote. Incidentally, if any of the church are near St Paul's Cathedral in London and have a spare 10 minutes, I would thoroughly 
thoroughly recommend going to Bracken House, home of the FT, and taking a look around the small museum and its old printing machine. Love the show, Steve, who, who by the time this comes out, he will be just finishing his daily show and well, moving on. Well. Anyway, I love the show, Steve. Hello to Jason. Down with monochrome paper printing. George in Gloucestershire. That, okay, that's genuinely fascinating. And thank you. That's theory. brilliant. And, if, if and anyone... how lovely that it's to do with the Financial Times being fiscally responsible. Exactly. And if you know uh, any other facts about that, we would love to. The Economist, the FT, I mean, how falutin. Even if our lift is low falutin, this is high falutin. This is high. Uh, but you're going to enjoy this email. Okay. Dear Newman and McQueen. I'm a long-term listener, first-time emailer, junior member of the Exorcist fan club, the proud husband of Lena Durham and the executive music producer on Catherine Called Birdie. Hang on, Lena Dunham? Yes, Lena Dunham. Yes. What did I say? Durham. Oh, no, that's Judith Durham. Oh, Judith. In, okay, fine. She was in The Seekers. <laughs> okay. Judith Durham was the lead singer of The Seekers, along with Keith Popker, Athol Guy and Bruce Woodley. How about that? Wow. So my apologies. Wow. Lena Dunham and the executive producer on Catherine Called Birdie. Which I loved. You did. That's what this email is. Oh, good. Okay, fine. Great. Okay. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for watching Catherine Called Birdie. Both Lena and I are huge fans of your observations. No. And it truly made our release day that you enjoyed it. And not just that, you went and made it your film of the week. I was dancing around my kitchen, shouting... Okay, now this has to be in the voice of Leto. Okay. Mamma mia, I cannot believe it. So now you have to do <laughs> Mamma mia, I cannot believe it. That's, that's exactly right. However, I hate to be the guy whose oh, ego God. makes him email in Here a small correction. Sorry. But I am that guy indeed. What did I do? I'm a musician after all. Yes. Really, it's just a little linear note. Yeah. Carter Burwell did the score. Yes. Features the musical ensemble Roomful of Teeth. But Matt Ulchin and I... Louis Felber, a.k.a. Atawelper, produced, arranged and performed the soundtrack. Our cover of All Right came out today, forgive the plug. Okay. Misty Miller sings all the songs, Minus One, performed by Bella Ramsey. Thank you. Birdie's song. Yes. Herself. And another one, Sweet Dream, sung by Emma Chitty. Her band is called Sugar. Okay, thank you. If I can can just put, put point out very quickly... I did try to research this more fully by trying to see what I, of the tracks were available, so I apologise for getting it wrong. Here is tip-top It is research. complicated. This is from The Horse's Mouth. Yeah, right. The soundtrack, alongside Carter's genius score, will be released by Amazon on streaming platforms on October the 7th, and vinyl. Oh, there's another plug. My debut solo record, Presence, by Atawelpa, which is my middle name, also comes out on October the 7th too, and yeah. I'm done. And we're playing a roomful of teeth track on Skull. Catherine called Birdie. Well, thank always you for that. Catherine called Birdie will always hold a special place in our hearts. We met on a blind date just days before Lena went on set to commence shooting in Shropshire. So it's a true joy to receive your review. Thank you for doing what you do. Love to Jason and all members of the church. Tickety-tonk, down with the Nazis, from Louis Brackets, Atawelpa. Thank you very much. Thank you for the correction. I mean, it wasn't for want of trying. Yes. Still, so you see, I think that's, that's great. That's very good. So if Thank you... you um, what I What I would now quite like to happen is for them to do a version of uh, a selection of songs by the seekers for their very next, good for the next not soundtrack. the new seekers not the no no the no, seekers the, the seekers georgie girl morning town ride yeah. uh, and and various oh, morning town rides a joy isn't it also if you are m- married to or in a relationship with anyone <laughs> who has made any of the films that we discuss please feel free <laughs> to get in touch we don't we don't mind receiving corrections as long as you are associated to someone who's made one of the films. Is that fair enough? 
<laughs> Correspondence at Cohen You're, you're the host. I just work here. Okay, right. So, Blackbird, what's the, what's the latest, Mark? Okay. Where, where are we here's, with your in-depth, undercover as as inquiry? Got. So, the Monaco Streaming Film Festival have sent me, finally... The reports on the 2021 and 2022 festival, but they don't tell me anything other than, read your question, Blackbird, we consider every film and series submission we receive for each award category, but there isn't a list of what those films were. It says the gala awards will recognise and celebrate new ideas shaping the on-demand streaming industry and honour the individuals and content producers who have made a significant contribution to the streaming industry. But I, Michael Flatley won Best Actor for a film which, to the best of my knowledge, is not on streaming. Right. So all I can say is I don't appear to have a list. I can't tell you who he beat. So there are no other nominees as far as we know. I have not been provided with a list okay. of nominees that Michael Flatley wa- uh, beat in order to win the... I think this is this is the end of it. So I am going to say, I'm sorry, I think that the award for Best Actor for Michael Flatley from the Monaco Streaming Film Festival isn't worth the paper it's not written on. And the newspaper that then said this has slashed his Oscar odds should be ashamed of themselves. And that's my final word. And that's probably it. Correspondence at KerbinAmeo.com. Let's have a word about Blonde. Yes. uh, This is from Tom Bolton. Uh, Today I took a trip to see Blonde. When, as the film began, the certificate from the Irish Film Classifications Office appeared. Now, now this confused me for two reasons. First, I was not in Ireland. I was in North London. Specifically, I was in the Crouch End Art House. And second, the rating shown on the certificate was a 16. I had heard all the hoo-ha from America about how this was the first NC-17 film in many years or whatever. And so I was expecting this to be a film that maxed out ratings in all regions. (laughs) My guess was that either the Irish were less strict than other classification boards or that I was about to watch a cut version of Blonde and not Andrew Dominic's cut. I still do not know why the rating was only 16 or why it was uh, the Irish certificate that was shown. What does Mark know of the Irish classification office? Does he have any explanation? Do you have any explanation for these events? No. Okay, thanks. If anyone can help, correspondence at kermanamayo.com. Tom says, in other news, the film was great and would make a great companion piece to my favourite film of last year, uh, which was Spencer. In the UK, the BBFC gave it an 18 certificate and uh, outlined exactly why. And it's, I mean, you know, it's it's not a film that pushes... There's nothing in the film that will be contentious in an 18 certificate film by any means. And and the, the whole American system with the R... And the NC-17 is so shot, it's not worth even but talking about. weird that you go to see uh, a movie in this country and what comes up is an Irish classification. Yes, that is odd. But yeah, it's, it's not the first time it's happened, but it is... Uh, so as far as you know, there isn't an edit, which is... Cause if uh, this... not, not as far as I know, I doubt that's the case. No, there wouldn't be. I, I, I okay. assume it's not. Otherwise, unless, unless the film literally starts opening credits and then finishes... Because if, if they were going to edit out anything, it would have to be the whole film. From the beginning. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, if anyone can help, uh, just get in touch. Uh, so the box office top 10 at 50 after Yang. Which I liked. I mean, it's uh, it, it's a really interesting AI story that's melancholic. It's a lovely score by Askabatsumir, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, and is is that aforementioned person going out with the person who made the film? No, I don't oh, believe so. Okay. No. Um <laughs> You, uh, th- number 35, Juniper. 
which, you know, we were talking about uh, last we week with Charlotte Rampling, who was, I thought, a fantastic guest. She was. We And the truth be known, we were both slightly scared of her when we she were. came in. We were. <laughs> but she... and, and a lot less scared of her when she left. But I have to say our respect for her, I think, was yes. through the roof. No, no, absolutely. She was a proper, a proper star who gave a proper, intelligent, smart, thoughtful interview. True. And... Normally, when you ask someone a question in an interview, you can tell from their facial expression whether they like the question, whether they don't like the question, whether you've actually got a very good point, which they agree with. But with Charlotte Rampey, had not a clue. She'd make a great lawyer. Yes. Yes, she just Just had that look, and then she answered the question. Uh, Number 10, Top Gun Maverick. It's been in the top top 10 for 18 weeks. (laughs) It's not going anywhere anytime soon. You would think it might be its last week, but anyway. Number nine here and in America, Bullet Train. Uh, Number eight here, uh, nowhere in America, Tad the Lost Explorer and the Curse of the Mummy. Yes, I've said I I don't really get the Tad series. Uh, Number seven here, number five in the States, DC League of Super Pets. I mean... I think it's the vacuum theory that it's done as well as it has because there wasn't anything else. I think that's it. Um, number six here, number 10 in America, Minions, The Rise of Gru. And this is now its 15th, 13th week in the in the charts. There's not a lot of change, Makes basically. me very happy. Moon Age Daydream is at number five. Which I just loved. And I'm going to go back and see it on IMAX because I know a couple of people have seen it on the IMAX screen and say it adds a whole other dimension to it. See How They Run is at number four, number six in the States. Really good fun. Uh, fantastic central performance by Saoirse Ronan. And just a complete surprise because I knew nothing about the film other than the posters before it opened. And it was just an absolute treat and a delight. Uh, Avatar is the UK's number three and America's number three. Yeah, reissue because um, we have the new Avatar coming in, uh, well, in soon, isn't it? It's amazing that that the old Avatar has gone in at number three. Yeah, but, you know. Uh, Number two here, number one in America. Still Smurfs in space, isn't it? Don't worry, darling. Uh, Charlotte Benson, age 16. Mark and Simon, tonight I watched Don't Worry Darling. I have absolutely no words to describe how I felt throughout the film and how I feel now about okay, the film. Okay, go ahead. Although she said she's got no words, but here, <laughs> are some. here are some. Florence Pugh was incredible as usual. Yes. Nick Kroll brought a bit of humour to the film. Harry Styles was amazing. He doesn't deserve any slander of his acting skills. He does. The film had some truly shocking events with most of the main events happening in the second half of the film. As a film student, I find it hard to watch a film without thinking about the aesthetic and cinematography. Visually, the film was beautiful and some of the cinematography was impressive. Yes. I think the story was good. However, my friend and I left the cinema with dozens of questions. Although I think that's that's what a film... Uh, that's what makes a film great. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's pretty much. And also, okay. can you give my dad a shout out, please? His name is Richard. He's a huge fan of your show. Thank you. He says he's an LTL. Yeah. Good. Well, Charlotte, top dad he is, and you've been brought up properly. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, don't worry, darling, number two. I mean, it does look good. It is The Stepford Wives. It's way too long. Um, it's not <clears throat> terrible. It's not great. It's just. Okay, yeah, that. Florence Pugh is really good. Harry Styles is really. Nothing. Uh, Chris Pine, you know, fairly scene stealing. Uh, It's funny that whenever I see Chris Pine, I do think William Shatner, and I don't think that's ever going to go away. Um, I, and, and when and when you say that, I just see him when the interview when we did the Star Trek uh, interview. I remember him doing. He was doing push-ups sh- or something. Strange bodybuilding exercises. <laughs> Much to the annoyance of his co-star. Yeah. Although I'm a big William Shatner fan because William Shatner's cover version of Common People is 
actually one of my favourite records. But no, I think Don't Worry Darling is fine, but it's way too long. And it is The Stepford Wives. Uh, and number one in the UK, nothing in America at the moment, Ticket to Paradise. Which, as we said at the time, good looking film starring George Clooney and Julia Roberts going on a fanciful mission to a beautiful place in order to destroy a marriage which you know uh, you know the marriage of their daughter which you know isn't quite going to happen it is exactly what it says on the tin and you know and it's old parker it's old parker all right all all right all yes yeah he's done pretty well straight in at number one and no surprise there. old parker is at number one he is and the world is a better place okay uh let's talk to our guest who, uh, there's no point in reading this cue, it's Christian Bale, okay? <laughs> so, so that's... Just, just, okay, a man who generally, right. genuinely needs no introduction. Uh, the new, it's his uh, new movie, David Russell uh, film uh, called Amsterdam, and you'll hear my conversation with Christian Bale after this clip. Tax the rich. We find ourselves in a situation where we're accused of killing someone, which is not true. You and Woodman fled the scene. The killer pointed at us. We didn't do anything. Why would you possibly think that was us? Well, there's not too many people that fit the description of a doctor looking for his eye on the ground with his uh, black attorney. Columbia Law School. Love is funny. We need someone to help us to find the truth. My friend was killed because of something monstrous that he had seen. This is all turning out to be a lot larger than any of us. That was a clip from Amsterdam. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by one of its stars and its producer, Christian Bale. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello there. Nice to see you in person. I've been doing most interviews virtually. In lockdown, I didn't think these face-to-face -face interviews would ever come back. Are you glad that they're back or are you yes. like, I wish I could stay at home? Well, you <laughs> Just look no, at you them kind of get a different interview when you can see somebody. Yes, that is true. So on Amsterdam, how did this project come your way? David and I uh, worked together a couple of times on The Fighter and American Hustle. Went well? I felt the same way, yes. No, I, I did. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed them. And, uh, you know, we talked about doing a couple of other projects, one of which did involve this art dealer with the injury to his face based on a real fellow. We talked about that a bit and then it just sort of drifted away. And then David called me up and he'd learned this jaw-dropping fact about American history that he'd never heard of before and he wanted to tell me about it and share that with me. And I went and we there was this place called Early World, this diner that we always met at. Yeah. And it started from that and began with sort of building these characters, having a backdrop of something that was incredibly serious and, I mean, world-changing event, potentially, which amazingly hardly anybody knows about, you know. It's because this gentleman that it, it featured spoke truth to power and so, yeah, he was just squashed. And that's the character that uh, Robert De Niro's character is based upon. And so that began like we were in no rush. We loved just kind of reading books, looking at photographs, imagining things, listening to music, watching jazz documentaries and stuff. And then gradually David built and wrote actually tons of scripts. He, he wrote like, you know, I've got at least 14 in my house. I went off, I made different films, but always had Bert kind of, uh, you know, percolating in the back of my head. So the, so the day um, you're talking about is obviously David O. Russell. David O. Russell, yes. Tell me about Bert Berenson, who is mm. the character who you play. He's an extraordinary character. Tell me about him and why he is kind of the centre of our story. Yeah, no, he's a good one. Oh, man, he's a great character. I love him a bit. See, we, we wanted to create a character that we just really wanted to be friends with ourselves. And he's someone who... 
has been through the grinder. You know, he knows pain and suffering both mentally, emotionally, and also physically. He's a veteran of the Great War, and he and he has this just wonderful outlook on life, which defies you know all the odds. Where he he, he should be, you'd expect him to be cynical and full of hate, but he's full of optimism and full of love and joy. And it's like a living well is the best revenge kind of a, a story. And then he and his friends who have this wonderful pact of friendship where they will do absolutely anything for each other, himself and Valerie and Harold who are played beautifully by Margot Robbie and J.D. Washington, they get pulled into this murder rap initially that then ends up being this uh, global conspiracy. So we sort of blended fact with uh, fiction in the 1930s. Can I ask you about Becoming Bert? It's an incredible, it's a very physical performance that you give us. A lot of that comes from the injuries that he's had in the war. Yes. Just explain how you become Bert in the film. It was a very nice amount of time that we had to, to prepare on it and no rush whatsoever. And so it really got kind of baked in. And But yeah, you know, he's got a back brace, uh, which just holds him together. He has um, injuries, scarring, he's lost an eye during the war, so he's stiff, he's full of pain. But at that time, you know, these returning vets, PTSD wasn't a thing at the time. You know, people were ashamed of men who had shell shock. It was an abysmal thing, you know, often families disowned their own sons because they were suffering from shell shock and it was just thought to be cowardice at the time. And It was a terrible period where these uh, uh, veterans would return thinking they would be treated as heroes and were not in the slightest. And then as such with Harold's character, JD, you know, they fought some of the toughest fights, weren't allowed to wear American uniforms and returned to an America that was right in the midst of like the Tulsa massacre, absolutely abysmal. But despite all of this, they're, they're fighters, they're scrappers. And in my mind, like these guys are true patriots, you know, who, who really do believe in opportunities for everybody and, and just people who want to have a great and fulfilling life. And so all these things come together and then you get mannerisms from these bits of my son, mannerisms that he has that I really liked and I included. And the DP, uh, Chibo, did my hair like him as a little tribute and then just following people around and seeing little bits and pieces and you, you know, you piece it all together. And I won't be the only person to mention Peter Falk's Columbo. Of course, yes. Because sometimes when you're hunched and the glass eye and you're yeah. rumpled and crumpled and you're looking right. at the screen you're going, that's Peter Falk. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and of course, you know, he's, he's absolutely wonderful and a, and a great inspiration and uh, uh, certainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. And, and crumpled suit and he owned Bert and he has one suit as well, you know. And, what role does Amsterdam have? It's it's given the film its title. Why? What what is the significance? Amsterdam is the there? kind of halcyon days that they have. It's the perfect time. It's it's bizarrely, you know, it's the place where they're healing and they're in great pain, but they forge their friendship in the crucible of the Great War, and it just becomes this idyllic place where not only can they heal and reinvent themselves, but it's also where um, Harold and Valerie, who fall in love, can be together. And then they return to America and their love there is forbidden. And sort of the hell of life, you know, pours in on them. So it becomes that place where everything felt right, where everything just sort of clicked for a while and the place that you want to try to recapture. Yeah. 
in your um, life. What's it like working on a David O. Russell movie? Your relationship with him is obviously to be very successful and you, you've explained how long this, this movie took to come together. What's it like to be in one of his pictures? Every great director has a unique take on a movie. That's what makes them great. You know, they, they really bring their personality and they manage to find a way to actually manifest that in the way that they work. Um, and uh, it's quite shocking for some people, uh, you know, some of the actors way? who, well, some of the actors who, you know, like De Niro, it was his fourth film. He, he's he's, he's uh, the most experienced. It was my third film. Um, for us, yeah, we just know it from the get-go. This is how David works. He's all over the place. He's, he's never just kind of sitting in a tent somewhere. He's under your chair. He's under the tablecloth. He's behind the camera. He's up a shelf. He's being told he's <laughs> in shot and scurrying out. He loves to be really close to the actors. We shoot the script which is usually like 200 pages long, but like with American Hustle, we shot the whole damn thing. It's all up on, on, on the screen. But then he will just start chucking out lines. He'll switch who says what line. And, and we get this amazing amount of choice. And with this one, he was generous enough to invite me into the edit room as well. So I got to really see just how many different films he can make from this method um, uh, that he has. And occasionally, though, you'd get an actor who it was their first day and they would look like a deer in headlights. Margot Robbie and, and J.D. Washington both, have both said in other interviews they're a little bit scared on their first day and they look to you right. for reassurance. Well, I was kind of considered the ambassador. So <laughs> so if, if, if David ever saw that uh, people were a little bit unsure, he would just look at me and go, can you go do your thing? And so I went, and, and it was funny, on that first day I found Margot was still quite close to the main set where we had been filming. And, but she was sitting by herself down in a hallway on the floor, just kind of head in her hands, looking like, oh, God, what has happened? What have I got myself into? And I went and sat down next to her and just asked her, you know, how's she doing? And what was she thinking? And then just sort of explained the way that David works and talked about it. And, and then I had to go hunt for JD because he had found, like, the most remote room he could possibly find that was still, like, actually within the boundaries of work that he hadn't just left. <laughs> And I found him sitting there just staring at a wall. And, uh, but then the two of them, you know, I managed to rally them and explain it. And then they came back and, man, they, you know, it, once you get it, you get it and, and you love it, you know. And it, it's, Is this it's you really being a producer? something because it's very liberating. No, no, it really, no, I, I would have done that anyway. You know, the thing I discovered is so many directors said to me that I act like a producer anyway just because I kind of like looking out for everybody and, you know, Whatever you can do, you do, you know, to help. So, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, had the very fortunate relationship with a number of directors where I've worked with them a few times. And so I'm kind of sent as ambassador a number of times uh, uh, for people. But on this one, it was that just, uh, hey, the whole thing started with David. And then David brought me on. So I was on it longer than anyone else other than David. And so I sort of, it was a natural thing for me to be producer, but a creative producer. I've got no interest in looking at spreadsheets and oh, really? numbers <laughs> or anything like that. Oh, no, I don't want to do any of that. It's, it's purely creative. Words come up at the beginning uh, of the movie. It says, a lot of this, a really, lot happened, of this really happened. Which makes yeah. a change from, the, you know, based on real events and all that kind right. of stuff. So, but that's very loose, isn't it? A lot of this really happened. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think 
David has said like 50 to 60 percent. I mean, what what do you understand by that? Well, um, entirely fictional characters as the main core, the three of us. Yes, based upon actual characters. There's a Dr. Shields, you know, and then uh, Valerie's character is based on this sort of Hannah Hawk and uh, Oppenheim and um, these various Dada, you know, very bold, wonderful artists of the era. And Henry Johnson uh, for, for, for Harold as well. But essentially fictionalized in in their relationships, but there is this factual event which is more in line with what Robert De Niro's character, General Dillenbeck, is based on a character, a man named Smedley Butler, who uh, I hope that people, after seeing the film, and there's this wonderful juxtaposition that David does at the very end where you see, oh, this is absolutely based on a real man, and this absolutely Absolutely, was an attempted coup. Uh, uh, within uh, America, America, an attack on American democracy back in the 1930s and, and people falling in love with fascism, the businessmen. And that, and that is something that I hope people go uh, take a look at. But first and foremost, we wanted to look at the love of this uh, triangle of friends. Final question, because we're running out of time, is about optimism. Mm. Can you explain up eyebrows or eyebrows up? Uh, eyebrows up. So eyebrows so, up. so that, that just became like the quick you know explanation of the, what we love so much about Bert. Is, is that he refuses to become cynical and full of hatred, whereas you would expect him to, you know? If you, if you look at what has happened to him in his life, you would expect that. But I've met people who have had absolutely oppressive, abysmal, truly abysmal lives, and they're some of the most joyous people that you've ever met, and they truly appreciate every damn moment of their life because they've been so close to death so many, so many times. And, and Bert is one of those people. And so it became our shorthand. And Eyebrows Up actually comes um, uh, from one of David's sons. He used to say it to David when David was concentrating too hard and frowning on something and his son didn't like it. And when he was little and he would say, Eyebrows Up, Daddy, meaning, hey, look happier, look I more like positive. It. So that became our little quick thing, Eyebrows Up to each other. Yeah. Christian Bell, thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you so much. That. Thank you. Good to see you in person. Fantastically affable. Very, very, very affable. And I felt a little bit like I felt when when Charlotte Rampton came in. I was a little bit kind of worried because I haven't interviewed Christian Bale before. No. And the first thing was, I'd, I, I can't remember the last time I heard him speak in his ordinary voice. Yes. So Because he, he's usually in character because he, he stays always, in the yes, accent, And almost he? always American. And, I mean, he was born in Wales, but that's a, that's a kind of a South London voice yeah, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But he was he was he was very affable, and I think it's just we've just we've discussed this before. He is so immersed in this project, as I said, he is a producer on the yeah. film that he he wants he wants you to like this picture. He wants you to be as enthusiastic as he is. Am I going to like it? I'm seeing it next week. I I I hope I, I hope so. Okay. I liked it. It's uh, what you don't get from that interview is that it is quite grisly. Okay, it is quite shocking. Right. Um, Taylor Swift is in it, and uh, there's all anyway. There's all kinds of. It's quite grisly. It's quite shocking. Taylor Swift is in it. Yes, that's. <laughs> so, yeah, they don't necessarily <laughs> all flow together. Although actually, A doesn't lead to B. Although actually, maybe it does. Okay. So um, <laughs> it's a very very interesting film. I do think it's going to be winning awards. Okay. I do. Okay. I do think that. I should also point out American Hustle does begin with the phrase. Some of this actually happened. Okay, so, so this I is escalated. Lo- I, this no, is, but yeah, exactly. I, I think that's really. Lot of really this happened. <laughs> so David Ross's next film has to be all of this actually happened. Yeah. 
okay, so we'll just dis- and we'll discuss Amsterdam next week when I've seen it yeah. on the program. So uh, let's talk about our old friend Jason. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, a throwback, old-fashioned romantic uh, comedy um, adapted from a novel. Mrs. Harris with a in apostrophe, okay. goes to Paris by Paul Gallico, who wrote The Snow Goose and The Poseidon Adventure. This book was previously filmed in 1992 in a version starring Angela Lansbury, Diana Rigg, and Omar Sharif, which I have to say I haven't seen. New version stars Leslie Manville, the fabulous, the sainted Leslie Manville, as Ada Harris, Harris who um, is a woman who is uh, making a living cleaning posh houses for people like Anna Chancellor, who is you know horrible and uh, you know won't pay her and treats her terribly. Dreams of a Better Life. It's set uh, some years after the war. She's been dutifully awaiting her husband's return from war. When she finally gets confirmation of his death, she discovers that she is owed a belated war widow's pension, which gives her some money. And she decides to seize the day along with some earnings from elsewhere and go to Paris to buy a Dior dress like the one that she has seen in Anna Chancellor's wardrobe that has kind of inspired this dream of of a better life. When she gets there... Paris in the middle of a dustman strike. She ships up at the house of Dior, just expecting to walk in and buy a dress. Greeted by Isabelle Huppert, who is uh, Claudine Colbert, who is like, you know, eh, what, what are you doing here? You know, this is, this is, you don't just walk in here. This is Dior. This is famous people here. But she is sort of taken under the wing of uh, a posh visiting gentleman who thinks she's being badly treated and who invites her in to the the, the fashion show initially and then she, because she has cash with her and the house of Dior is in trouble they realise that they can't just turn her away because they actually do need her custom so she's staying in Paris she's going to get the dress and Isabelle Huppé's character is not happy about this is a clip this Dior dress that you desire so much where will you wear it? at the Vienna Opera Ball or Queen Charlotte's? will you wear it to polish floors or will you keep it shut in your little wardrobe? A jaw dress is designed to astonish and delight. How will you do that, Mrs. Harris? You, (laughs) forgive me for saying this, but you are nobody, invisible. How will you give this dress the life it deserves? It's my dream. Now, one thing it's worth saying is that in that scene, you had Isabelle Huppert and Leslie Manville, who were two of the greatest screen talents of all time. And this is a piece of absolute froth and fluff. Nothing wrong with that, but it is rather like having Robert De Niro and Al Pacino doing a kind of uh, light comedy. The director has said that the key to the story is magic realism. It has to have an equal dose of magic and reality. If you go too far into magic, you won't believe it. If you go too far into realism, it wouldn't have that uplifting fairy tale quality. Let's be clear, nothing in this film is real, okay? It is a fairy tale fantasy. Yes, there's a bin strike. It's the cleanest looking rubbish I've ever seen in my life. Yes, there are drunks in the railway station, but they talk about existentialism and they're absolutely lovable. And um, when one of the characters returns from shopping, no surprise, he's got a bag with a huge baguette sticking out the top of it. I'm pretty certain there was a string of onions in there and I'm sure there was a stripy T-shirt. The point is, it's not meant to be in any way real. It is a fairy tale fantasy. Leslie Manville seems to be channeling Brenda Blethyn in Secrets and Lies. There is a, oh, sweetheart, darling, uh, quality to the performance. And it also, it's quite funny because in Phantom Thread, she's on the inside of the haute couture house, you know, looking out. And on this, she's on the outside looking in. So actually, you could play them as a very interesting Leslie Manville uh, double bill. Meanwhile, Jason Isaacs um, uh, bringing out his best lovable rogue Irish accent. Oh, he's Irish? Oh, yes, he's Irish. Yeah. And, um, okay. And he's this character who, the minute you see him at the beginning, he's got this twinkle, he's got this thing, and you think, okay, he's the person in whom to invest 
you know, faith and because he's and I won't spoil anything, but there's there's no surprise in learning that, you know, you kind of fall in love with Jason in about five seconds flat. Um, it's the very definition of a film that, to quote, uh, you know, that thing I would say, but it goes down nicely with a cup of tea and a biscuit misses. I mean, it's fluffier fluff than the fluff that would be on the, if you put a t-shirt in the, you know, in the, the tumble dryer on super hot and it comes out with little bits of fluffy lint on it. It's that. It's the fluff that's on those bits of fluffy lint. It is exactly what you think it is. It is slightly odd that you've got these absolute powerhouse performers just, you know, a souffle of a film. But it's. I think it's good. You know, it'll find its audience with the, I think, the older audience goers. I think you and I well, probably, we know, we, we know, know, you we know. know. And we know how successful, I mean, we mentioned Old Parker just a, while, just a while back. He makes movies that people go and see. Clearly he's yeah. number one, so maybe this is going to be another one. And there is that thing about now of all times, it's kind of like you go, what do you want to do? You want us to see Ken Lo I want to go see Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, actually. Yeah. Well, when you when the when everything is tanking, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, then people think, "What are you going to see? Do you want some gritty realism, or yeah. do you want?" Or to would see... you like a Frenchman with a baguette sticking out of his thing and somebody following their dream? Do you stand up and shout hello to Jason when he walks on the no. first time? Why no, not? because Why that would not? be disrespectful to the performance. He's, the first time he walks on, he's doing. Oh, here's the thing. There is a scene, right, very, very early on, in which he is dancing in the background. And I'm sure it's him and not a body double. When did you learn to jive, Jason Isaacs? Oh, he can do it's, anything. I mean, my word. It's, he's scene stealing even when he's in the background. <laughs> Excellent. So that's Mrs. Harris goes to... By the way, Robert De Niro, who you mentioned yes. uh, in passing, and also got a mention uh, from Christian Bale because he plays uh, a general in the David O. Russell film Amsterdam to be discussed next week. Robert, you know, we have discussed him before yes. and his career trajectory. <laughs> but he is currently on Netflix in a movie with Jason Statham called Killer Elite. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> really? Well, there came a point in his career that he decided that, you know, I think, you know, financing Tribeca and all the rest of it was, he, he, he'd proved the point. You know, he'd done Taxi Driver, he'd done everything. There wasn't anything left to prove. He, it was the next thing he was in. Was it Dirty Grandpa or Filthy Grandpa or all of those horrible Grandpa? Yeah, the one in which Zac Efron finds him enjoying himself in a gentleman's. Oh, way. Yeah. oh yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend. Good heavens, Killer Elite. I have to say that won't be. Someone suggest that for us to Did check you watch out. It? I, I watched half of it. And I think that was <laughs> fine. I'll leave. I'll leave it there. I love Jason Statham. I'm really looking forward to the Meg Two, directed by um, Ben Wheatley. Okay, so the ad's in a minute, Mark. Oh, but, good. but first, mm -hmm. it's time once again to step into our still lofalutin laughter lift. Can't we just go straight to the ads? No. <laughs> uh. Hey, Mark, I was watching Bake Off Australia this week. Yes. And the audience cheered and clapped enthusiastically when one of the contestants made a perfect concoction of whipped egg whites and sugar. Which is really odd, isn't it? Australians usually boomerang. Yes. A bit of a mixed week for the uh, good lady's pharmacist, her indoors. She's been doing her family tree and discovered that her ancestors came from Transylvania. Now she can't even look herself in the mirror. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> With apologies to the Romanian vanguard. That's very good. Is that a racist joke, maybe? <laughs> anyway, I got a worrisome call from the showbiz North London police this week. Yeah. 
Mr Mayor, a quiet word please, they said. There have been complaints from road crews in the area that the good lady ceramicist there indoors has been stealing street furniture when she's been out on her walks. Uh, now, we'd like you to be discreet. Could you please uh, have a word? And I didn't want to believe it, but when I got home, all the signs were there. <laughs> anyway. I th- That's, that really is a, a reverse-engineered joke, isn't it? I like it's- it. All the best right. jokes. Anyway, what's still to come, Mark? Oh, uh, we're still to review uh, Smile uh, and The Woman King. Back after this, unless you're a Vanguard Easter, in which case your service will not be interrupted and we'll be back before you can say Willibald Hahn. And now we welcome you to the draw for the 2022 World Cup of Horror. Explain to me how this is going to work. <laughs> Very good. This is top production. This is good, isn't it? Is this going to tinkle away underneath me, or is it going to be a little bit abrasive? I think it's quite good. Okay, it's quite good. Okay. I've, I've been joined here in the studio by Dr. Mark Kermode, Hello. author of The Radical, Ethical and Political Implications of Modern British and American Horror Fiction. Mark, are you excited for this draw? I am. Why? Am I supposed to be reading something else? No, no, no it's a genuine question. Why because I've never done a, a I've, I've been told it's like a World Cup draw. That's which, right. And they just, Simon Poole just said to me, Mark, I hate to ask, but have you ever seen a World Cup draw? And my answer was no. Okay, so what we have uh, on the desk here is uh, a Horrotron. Okay, which, as you know, is like, I have like a cage, like a hamster cage, which I'm going to turn, and it allows the balls, there we have a series of white balls, all numbered, each represented, like ball four is Shaun of the Dead, 15 is Psycho, 26 Dawn of the Dead, that kind of thing. Okay. okay. And then that will determine who plays who. Okay. Okay, you ready? So, Not really, okay. but that's fine. Right, and there is our first ball. Okay. It's come out the wrong hole, but there you go. And the first ball is number 29. Number 29. The Thing. The Thing. And I take it we're talking about the John Carpenter, The Thing. Yes, fine. Okay, cool. Okay, he's going to play. Oh, here it comes. The Thing is going to play ball number 26, which is Dawn of the Dead. Wow. Okay, well, that's going to be a toughie. That's a that's a tough match. That's two top teams, both at the top of their scale. Am I doing this right? Yeah. yeah. Am I getting this right? Okay. This is a bit like being on the National Lottery again on the telly. <laughs> yes, how did that work out for you? It worked very well, actually, for three seasons. Thank you very much. Before I was replaced by Philip Schofield. Yes, as you, as you discovered from an ice cream seller. I am over it. Uh, <laughs> next is no, uh, 21, The Exorcist. Yes. It's out early. Yes. Who's going to beat The Exorcist? Well, nobody, obviously. Well, that would make it a fixed draw. Go ahead. It's number 13, American Werewolf in London. Well, American Werewolf in London definitely pulled the short straw because in any other matchup they might have had a chance, but that's going to be a 6-0 defeat. Um, Oh, we've got two balls at the same time. That doesn't matter. Uh, (laughs) Number three... It's not a phrase you hear that often on the radio. (laughs) Number three, let the right right one in. Yes, which is great. Uh, will play number five, The Witch. Again, these are very, very closely matched. I mean, both of those are uh, top-performing horror titles. Okay, zipping on through here. Number 31, Alien. Yes. Another big hitter. Another premier premier team. Oh, wow, that got thrown out. Uh, We'll play 
Number 17, Carrie. Again, hard to predict. I mean, you know, both very, very strong contenders. Yes. And number 10, 28 Days Later. Okay. We'll play... Scrappy Independent. 32, Carlisle United. Oh, no, <laughs> 32, The Shining. That's going to be heated because people feel very strongly about The Shining. Uh, number 22, Jaws. Okay. Is that Cow's Horror Film? Of course. We'll play... Number seven, The Innocents. That's a kind of... It, it's... Yeah. Mm. That was, thank you for your expert analysis. On that <laughs> How one. can a blockbuster 1973 full cut? Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Come. Number eight is the descent. Okay. Which I would. I think is, is terrific. We'll play film number thirty, Scream. This is going to be really hard to predict. I'm. I'm sorry. This is actually working out much better and much closer than I thought it was going to. I thought it was going to be an absolute obvious winner in each one. Fourteen is the fog. The fog. John Carpenter. Yeah, I know. Uh, just helping. Yeah, go on. 25 is Get Out. Okay, fine. Well, that's... Yeah. that's bye, bye bye the fog. They absolutely drew the short straw there. Uh, next one out of the of our Horrortron, 23, Nosferatu. Okay, yes. We'll play... Number 15, Psycho. I thought that had come out already. Nosferatu, no. Nosferatu and Psycho, no. You, you, say, oh, you yes, did it I when you were presenting the thing. That, Nosferatu yeah. versus Psycho. Well, that... That is a very, very that's a that's a big hitting that's match. A classic that matchup, is an that absolute is. classic matchup. Cool. Sixteen is Ring. Okay, the original Ring as opposed to the American Ring. So, right, Ring you. Pronounce yeah. Ring. Uh, we'll play number nineteen, The Wicker Man. This is really hard. Good. That's really. I mean, that will be the Wicker Man, but you know. Uh, Twenty is out next. A Nightmare on Elm Street. The original. We'll play. We'll play. This is actually really well done. Number 12, Suspiria. Oh. Oh. Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. Yeah, yes, probably. But that's, you know, putting it up against an Argento. That's a... That's Number a because, of course, it... Going. Four is Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Sadly, not playing Dawn of the Dead. 28, Halloween, 1978. Okay. That's a tricky one, really. It is, but, you know... Next out, uh, 27, Evil Dead. Original Evil Dead. No, Evil Dead 2. Oh, Evil Dead 2, okay, Dead by Day, fine. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the more popular choice, yes. Very few balls left. So, Evil Dead 2 against... Number 18, which is Rosemary's Baby. Okay, well, that's going to be Rosemary's Baby. Uh, next one out is number one, Don't Look Now, okay. 1973. Be very careful what you pitch this against. Well, it's going to be a random selection. That's the whole nature of it. Yeah, thing. I know. I mean, the weird well, thing is, careful, although, although this I? is radio, he is actually doing this. I can't be careful. It's not coming out. It's nothing. not coming out. <laughs> Nobody wants to take on the challenge. <laughs> the, the balls are literally refusing to come out and challenge Don't Look Now. <laughs> Have you closed the door? Ah, Yay! Okay, and so... The lucky loser is... The Omen. Bye-bye. Which is a shame, because Jerry Goldsmith won an Oscar for that, so... She come. <laughs> How hard can this be? Here he's, we go. got it, he's got Here it, he's got it, he's got it. I'm yeah, doing back, back and, and forth, forth. Back and forth. Number nine, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We'll play Manchester City. <laughs> Hang 
clearly the fewer balls in there, the longer this thing takes. Texas will play number six, Night of the Living Dead. Okay, we're gonna get. Okay, this is really hard to call. This is really, really hard well, that's to your call. Job. No, but I mean, so well, I think actually that's going to be Night of the Living Dead in that case. The yeah. last two won't come out, so I can tell you they are if I can read them. <laughs> Number <laughs> two, A Quiet Place. Yeah, we'll play twenty-four. Uh, is Oni Baba? Wow! And the forty. The themes. film that William Friedkin said will scare the living out of you. Okay, that's that's a hard. I mean, that's going to be Oni Baba. If anyone's seen it, that completes the draw uh, for the 2022 World Cup of Horror Films. Okay. First round will be played on Twitter, on that there Twitter on October the first, with the final tie played live in our Halloween show at the Indigo at the O2 in London on October the 31st. Go to kermodermail.com for your tickets. Have you been there recently? Uh, not recently, no. But um, but I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so the round of 32, is just in case you want to put this in your diary, the round of 32 is on the 1st, 2nd and 3rd and 4th of October. There's 16 matches there. The round of 16 will be on the 10th of October. Quarterfinals on the 17th. Um, semi-finals on the 24th of October. And then the grand final, as I mentioned, 31st of October, live during our show at the Indigo. Right, let's uh, let's do another review. Tell us about this uh, this horror movie that we've got. Smile, which is a horror film by Parker Field, adapted from his 2020 short Laura Hasn't Slept. Susie Bacon is Rose Cotter, a doctor working gruelling hours uh, in a psychiatric unit. Terrified young woman comes into the unit claiming that she is being followed by something demonic and smiling. Here's a clip. Hey, I just want to have a chat. I'm seeing something. It's smiling at me, but not a friendly smile. It's the worst smile I've ever seen in my life. And whenever I see it, I just get this god-awful feeling like something really terrible is going to happen. It told me that today's the day that I'm, I'm going to... Do you see it right now here? <sighs> <laughs> Blimey, Charlie. So what then happens is her face cracks into a terrible smile. Whose face? The per person that we just heard then saying, I'm being pursued by, by something with a terrible... So not, not the sort of specialist? No, not the... No, exactly. Right. And, um, and then uh, attacks herself. And uh, Rose uh, says she's fine, you know, but everyone thinks that you must be traumatised because somebody just, you know, committed suicide in front of you. But she then starts to have visions of the smiling girl and she becomes petrified that she is being followed by a curse. In fact, she is being followed by something very like the curse from the original Ringu. In the original Ringu, um, there's the whole thing about the videotape, you watch it, seven days later you die. There is a setup that here that it's, it's not the same, but it's similar. So it's not the most original horror film of, of recent years, and it does rely very heavily, as I think you kind of heard slightly from that, on the quiet, quiet bang, loud noises stuff that we've talked about in that the past. That was quite scary, though, I have to say. Yes, and that's the point. What it does do is use a familiar box of tricks rather well. I jumped or jolted at least three times, and in between, I realised that I was actually quite enjoying the anxiety of wondering where the next revelatory jolt was going to come from. It's not quite, quite none, which was always kind of really boring. Actually, the creepy smile thing, which is done, it's every now and then they do the creepy smile thing and it is really, really creepy. Um, and if you are a genre fan, you will notice names in the credit like Tom Woodruff, who I don't want to spoil anything about the film, but 
There is stuff in there for the genre fans, which I enjoyed. There is a terrific score by Cristobal Tapia de Vere, whose credits include The Girl with All the Gifts, which I know you liked very you did much. Like it, yeah. And I think is a really terrific composer whose whose score gets right under the kind of the skin, the atmosphere of the piece. So look, yes, it's not the most original thing, but it's a nuts and bolts horror film that made me anxious, made me enjoy the anxiety, made me jump a few times, and has got a central riff which it plays very nicely and then stops in a nicely dark way. So I was surprised by how much I thought it was decent. I know that that's not everyone's opinion. Colin Scott in Chesterfield, a long-term heritage listener loving the new format. Thank you. Just escaped from my local bankrupt cinema complex, having been eligible for a special early viewing of Smile. So, in the positive, the opening sequence, which we have seen most of in the trailer, is good. It's creepy. Caitlin Stacy is perfectly cast as Smile Girl. Some perfunctory quiet, quiet bang follows, but honestly, once we got to about a third of the way in, my sirens were sounding. Here we are, in 2022, with a film that has a central message of, quote, Crazy people are crazy and you should be scared of crazy people because they're scary and don't be around crazy people because it's catching. As And that bit was in parentheses. As this continued, I became more and more angry. A brief opportunity near the end for some minor attempt at redemption was lost for a generic horror trope ending and a scene that was as moronically stupid as it was lacking in any sense of a decent special effect. I am sure that my anger at this film is OTT for something that is actually too bland for major comment, but seriously, anxiety, depression, PTSD and psychosis really should be treated more sensitively in this day and age. Colin Scott signs off 10 more years, point (laughs) d'exclamation, and kind regards. Okay. well, look, thanks for the email. Um, here's the thing, in terms of that thing about the special effects at the end, which was kind of what I was referring to, I don't agree. I thought they were well done and I enjoyed them. Um, but I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of creature feature stuff. As far as the, uh, the issue that you raise about the film's treatment of mental illness, it's worth pointing out that the film is about a curse and, um, a character thinks they are cursed and everyone says, no, you're not cursed. It's, you know, you're, you're suffering PTSD. No, it's a curse in the same way that, in The Exorcist, the doctor spent a long time saying, we think it's temporal lobe, we think it's this, we think it's that and the other. And the audience is going, no, she's possessed by a demon. The film is called The Exorcist. So I do understand that. I mean, I think you flagged this up yourself in the in the email that your alarm bells went off and you took against the film and you say actually very generously, you know, maybe kind of overreacted. I don't think that's sorry, that's not the right way of saying it, that your reaction was heightened. I don't think that Smile is any better or worse than any number of horror films in the way in which it depicts or uh, uh, treats mental illness, because it's not about mental illness. It's about a curse. Um, If you look back at the history... Like a proper genuine curse. Yes. Like Ringu is about a cursed videotape. There is no sense in... The whole point in Smile is when people keep saying, you're suffering from PTSD. No, she's not. She's suffering from a cursy thing. because It's a horror film in which there are big, bangy, cursy things. Um, and I think that it's, it's, it's odd to pick, to pick out Smile particularly for criticism when, you know, in a genre of films of which one of the big daddies that we just talked about in the thing is called Psycho, 
and in which you know you could make the very same claims about that. I don't think that Smile is about mental illness. I think it is about a curse. But that said, any number of films, and horror is going to be particularly true of this, can have the appearance or wear the clothing of a film that is about uh, you know, mental illness. And of course, all horror is in the end allegorical. So the point that you make, you can, you could read it that way if you wanted to. I think it's more to do with that. And I absolutely respect your opinion. And I would absolutely respect somebody saying, look, if this is a subject about which you have particularly strong feelings, this is not the film for you. It also deals with suicide, which is a subject which is, you know, often very, very problematic in terms of films. But it is marketed as a horror film. It says what it is. The trailer makes that pretty clear. I I don't think it should be singled out for criticism. Uh, you can uh, Is respond. Fair? Does that sound fair? Yeah, to you? that sounds that sounds fair. I haven't seen the film. No, no, no. But, I know, but you know, um, if you'd like to take part in this conversation, which I'm sure will continue at kermadamayo.com. Quick bit of uh, what's on now. This is where you email us a voice note about your festival, maybe a special screening from wherever you are in the world. You send it to correspondents at kermadamayo.com. This week we start with Laura. Hello, Simon and Mark. This is Laura from Fragments Festival. Over the course of a long weekend, we will celebrate inclusivity through an exciting programme, opening preview of The Woman King introduced by the director, Drag King live drawing, reggae night and a great selection of features, shorts and events. Join us at Genesis Cinema in East London between the 29th of September and the 2nd of October. Hello, Simon and Mark. This is Joe from Sensoria Festival. Sensoria, the Sheffield-based film and music festival, offers a packed programme for its 15th edition. Films and music docs cover the stories of Throbbing Gristle, Patti Smith and Sheffield's own Studio Electrophonique, plus many more. Sensoria welcomes you to our world of film and music from 30th of September to 8th of October at venues across Sheffield. Visit sensoria.org.uk for more details. Hi, Mark and Simon. This is Lucy from Shot Put, a dance theatre company in Glasgow. Our show, Ferguson and Martin, which is based on Hitchcock's Vertigo, is on tour now. Several venues are screening the Hitchcock film before or after the live show, including a favourite haunt of Mark's, the wonderful Moreel on Shetland. Visit www.shotput.org for all the details and follow us at Shotput Theatre. So we had Laura from East London Fragments Festival, uh, Joe from Sensoria Festival in Sheffield, Lucy from Shotput in Glasgow. Uh, your 22nd thereabouts audio trailer would be great from wherever you are. Uh, you send it to correspondents at kerbidomeo.com. A couple of weeks up front, that'd be great. And you give yourselves a shout out. Uh, so thanks very much indeed for those. What else have we got to look at? Uh, the Woman King, which opens here on Tuesday on the 4th, a new film from Gina Prince-Brythewood, whose directorial CV includes uh, Love and Basketball, Secret Life of Bees, and the Charlie's Throne action movie, The Old Guard, which I remember you oh, yeah. enjoyed. Yeah. So, um, historical fiction uh, epic, loosely, loosely inspired by real events about the Agoji, the female warriors who protected the West African kingdom of Dahomey. Uh, the film uh, stars Viola Davis, who has become something of an Oscar tip since it premiered uh, at, I think, was it Toronto? Very, very good response. And this kind of is the beginning of uh, award season. So she plays uh, General Naniska, who is leader of the Goji, who we meet in West Africa in 1823. Um, we are told the spearhead of an elite form of female, uh, an elite force of female soldiers. John Boyega is the king. It's Actually, I think it's, it's his best role. Naniska is his trusted advisor and, uh, you know, confidant. Uh, Jimmy Odekoya is the warlord Oda of the Oyo Empire who trades with Portuguese slave traders with whom the king is trying to keep peace, even if that means 
handing over some of his own people. And in flashback, we learn of a history between Naniska and that warlord. Uh, Tuzan Bedu is Nawi, who's a teenage warrior in training. Um, the cast also has Lashana Lynch and Shiratim as Izogi and Imenza, who are comrades of uh, Naniska, both of whom are great. I mean, it's a really, really good ensemble cast. You kind of look at the cast list and you go, yeah, great, 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 great. And then you see them all and they go, great role, great role, great role, great role. Um, but it is absolutely Viola Davis who owns the screen. Here's a clip from The uh, Woman King. Wow. Yeah. Some fierce faces there. But it's it is a really fantastic central performance by Viola Davis. You know, as you said, you interviewed for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, in which that was such a physical performance. I think it's every now and then you see a film which really kind of showcases somebody's ability to command the screen. And I think one of the most impressive things about uh, Woman King is that in the middle of this, you know, you've got a great ensemble cast, you've got spectacle, you've got action, really well choreographed action scenes that are, you know, properly kind of exciting and quite brutal. And all this stuff going on. And at the middle of it, you have the figure of Viola Davis just literally drawing all eyes towards her. And there's something really impressive about that. There's something that's like, okay, wow, that's like... That's movie star quality, and it's such a physical performance. Whole film looks great. It's uh, shot by Polly Morgan, whose credits include A Quiet Place Part Two, uh, Terence Blanchard's score. Um, you know, it's a fairly mainstream movie in terms of its construction. I mean, it's certainly not sort of challenging the way in which cinema is. It's not like a Peter Strickland movie, for example. And some people have made comparisons to things like Braveheart, and it has it shares a kind of equal melodrama with that but i think it's it's a it's a real crowd pleasing movie that perhaps suggests that in the wake of things like uh like black panther that the cinematic landscape has properly begun to change no surprise that there is being a, a, a awards talk for it i mean it's not perfect but it's a really big crowd pleasing meaty you know movie with history and action and spectacle and at the center of it Viola Davis just tearing the screen up and it's not just that the performance is you know muscular and all that it's also you know there's there's pain and anguish and there's this kind of subplots about well I won't give away what the subplots are so there's space for emotion there's space for the quiet place there's space for the film to breathe but it's yeah, it's a it's a proper get a load of this piece of uh, mainstream entertainment. See it on a big screen. See it on a big screen. Now that is the end of take one. Production management and general all round stuff was Lily Hamley. Cameras by Teddy Riley. Videos on our YouTube channel by Ryan O'Meara. Johnny Socials was Jonathan Imieri. Studio engineer Josh Gibbs. Flynn Rodham is the assistant producer. Guest research Sophie Ivan. 
Hannah Talbot is the producer, the redactor, Simon Poole. Mark, what is your film of the week? Well, I know it's not for everyone, but it's my film of the week. I'm going for Flux Gourmet. It can't be the woman king then. I just said, I know it's not for everyone, but it's Flux Gourmet. Uh, Next week, Sally Hawkins will be our guest on the programme. Thank you for listening. Our extra takes with a bonus review, a bunch of recommendations, and even more stuff about movies and cinema-adjacent television will be available on Monday. We'll see you then. (laughs) 